Welcome to the Future Humans podcast with Gene Houston and Annalise Smitsman, the co-authors of the Future Humans Trilogy. For this first episode, we are interviewing Dr. Mariana Bozizan, a true pioneer in the world of integral investment and the economics of systems change. This unique interview took place for the writing of Return of the Avatars, the Cosmic Architect Tools of Our Future Becoming, which is the second book of our Future Humans trilogy. Mariana features in this book as a real-life character in the final chapter, when the fictional characters, Rose and Lee, have a series of questions for her about the making of the new operating systems for our human development. Mariana is an award-winning integral investor and successful serial entrepreneur, leveraging exponentially growing technologies to accelerate the implementation of the UN SDGs within planetary boundaries by 2030. She is a renowned author of the Integral Investing from Profit to Prosperity, a report to the Club of Rome and the World Academy of Art and Science. Through this interview, Mariana shares with us how the first step towards addressing our sustainability crisis is about our own mind shift. She reminds us that the human spirit has the ingenuity needed to overcome most challenges and how this human quality has never been more obvious than now when the collective intelligence of billions of people are converging and showing us how we can provide the solutions to the global grand challenges. The first question to Mariana is asked by Jean Houston. Well, first I must say that I am just on tenterhooks to find out what you're going to say, Mariana, because I think of you as a Renaissance person, Rinascita, you know, rebirthing the world into a new kind of time. Um, and just as the great 15th century Renaissance in Europe was preceded by a terrible pandemic, a terrible plague, we seem to find ourselves in the same place. But the it was followed by this rebirth of spirit of ideas, of the varieties of uh, all manners of both thinking and doing. And I see you as a classical and yet very present example of a Renaissance person, you know, just reading some of your work. And so I dare to ask you that out of the breadth and depth of your thinking, if you could actually do a very Renaissance thing, and that is design, design the economic and financial systems of a possible world, as happened also in the 15th century Renaissance. This would be a world that really can work and that can work for everyone. What would be its most important qualities? Well, first of all, thank you so much uh, to both of you for having me on your program. I am uh, deeply honored and humbled to be here. So thank mm. you. Uh, I couldn't have dreamt that one day uh, Jean Houston would interview me, but so thank you. <laughs> and uh, thank you, Anna Luz, for making this all possible because it takes one to see one. So the fact that um, 
that we're having this conversation speaks for for the reality that we are able to see each other and, uh, and not only that but join forces into um, trying at least to find some solutions to the grand global challenges so in terms of trying to answer your question i think that's that's there are no easy answers and i can only come um to an answer from my own little perspective as being a woman and um and an entrepreneur and um and an investor and having studied computer science and artificial intelligence at the time when most people didn't even know what computer science was they all thought that was uh, had something to do with uh, journalism because <laughs> because it's called informatic in german and they all thought it was journalism so and uh, i discovered early on in my uh, you know at the end of uh, 1979 i started computer studying computer science um that artificial intelligence um was much much more interesting because it it built the bridge in using technology in an intelligent way to really address um problems real world problems that um that humanity has and uh and i i had learned in school about the limits to growth uh, the the book that was uh, written in and 74 by the club of rome or the report to the club of rome and i knew wow artificial intelligence has the opportunity can help uh, bring technological solutions to the grand global challenges so <clears throat> fast forward into today's day like 50 years later i think uh, one of the most important things that we have lost as we are being overwhelmed by grand global challenges is hope and um the abundance that nature is providing us and so our fear have taken over and scarcity thinking which is an amazing lie as my dear friend Lynn Twist says um is has taken over our emotions our thinking everything that we do and so that leads to a type of culture that we have implemented over the past decades that is based on scarcity thinking and greed so we believe that by accumulating more things be it money being possessions being whatever you know a wife a husband a house a boat or whatever it is we have succumbed to the lie that that will give us um the the security that um our hearts are actually seeking and so if you're asking me what i would do and what what are the acupuncture points in addressing uh the grand global challenges from my perspective first of all that would start with the mind shift with um with working on ourselves individually most starting that's where it starts um and opening our hearts to see the abundance that nature has provided us over ever since civilization um, human civilization started and i think if we open up to this extraordinary opportunity uh, that we currently have and which is clearly visible in the technological realizations and achievements that we have then i think that then we would begin to trust 
that we together can provide and come up with the solutions that we need right now. Because fear is a good slave, but a terrible teacher. And so that would be a long answer to a short question. Mind shift. Work on ourselves you know, to achieve, to, to build, to begin to build a road, a bridge between the head and the heart. And uh, so that's the, the longest way, actually, that humanity and uh, each of us individually have to, uh, to overcome. Thank you. And that from the mind to the heart shift, I agree with you. I think that is just so, so important. And I'm actually really interested in your experience here, your personal experience. You've been working with top level businesses around the world. And so you would have encountered also resistance from people in that transformation. And yet there are many examples that you have where that shift has occurred, where you yourself, through who you are, somehow has found that sweet spot <laughs> for people to help them make that mind shift and also make the heart shift. So if you were to kind of recall some of those most transformative moments that you've had, with people who are really also a leading force in business. If you recall that, what would you say was really what made the shift happen? There are so many shifts. It's not just one thing that happened. First of all, I started I, being born in, and growing up in at the bottom of the pyramid. I went. I was born and raised in Romania. As uh, uh, the only child between a German mother and a Romanian father, and I in, encountered discrimination very, very, very early on, um, and that is due to fear again, because people in Romania could not make sense why my parents would speak Hungarian with one another um, in a country that is Romania, and they didn't couldn't understand that. That was the only language that both of them spoke because they took it in school. And when they fell in love, my father gave a concert. Uh, he was uh, he loved to sing, and uh, he got flowers. And uh, then he went into after the concert to uh, give those flowers to the most beautiful girl in the room. And that's how my he met my mother, who didn't speak any Romanian, although she and uh, she belonged to the German minority that had actually lived in, um, uh, you know, Transylvania for 800 years. But anyway, so that's how they met and they could, they fell in love. And the only way how they could communicate was uh, Hungarian. And so I grew up very early on in an environment that was hostile, hostile, not only because we didn't have anything to eat, although both my parents worked very hard, but the, the, the communist system, the way it was implemented, didn't properly work. People had the best of intentions, but you need the intentions alone are not enough to provide the economic uh, environment so that people can thrive. And so that's a wonderful example of how ideas, if they're not implemented integrally, um, they don't work. So at age 16, when um, we finally, because of my mother's heritage, we were allowed to leave Romania because the Germans looked for workers. And because of our German heritage, they opened the, uh, the doors and uh, we could come to Germany. All of a sudden, I found myself again being discriminated because I was uh, 
you know, a refugee. I wasn't a refugee, but that's how people perceived it. And so I had, again, uh, to look within and work on my personal growth to try to understand and find a place in a, in a hostile environment, although the German government was extremely uh, um, helpful. And so they sent me to school, nothing cost, and all of a sudden life was much, much better. And as I moved ahead, you know, in, in began studying computer science, I was surrounded by people who were more open-minded. And so the entire um, thing ch it changed. And, um, and I ended up... Uh, uh, being becoming an exchange student at Stanford University because of my interest in artificial intelligence within the computer science um, studies, and that again changed my life radically. Um, in because I again met and was uh, grateful and uh, blessed to live in an environment of multiple cultures. Silicon Valley is just a, a wonderful um, environment to really work on issues and. Uh, meet multiple cultures and uh, be at home in the world, basically. So that transformed me again. But what really, really shifted um, my, my inner life was when in the mid-90s, my husband and I, we were living in Silicon Valley. We saw Mosaic. We had known, we knew the internet, and uh, we, for the first time, we saw the the first browser that would enable the humanity to really, really get access to the internet, to the world, the wealth of information and data and knowledge. And we knew that a new era was starting. And uh, so after a failed uh, start, uh, startup in Silicon Valley, we came to Germany wanting to bring people onto the internet only to find out that they didn't understand. I mean, the most advanced, the telecommunications and all of these people in Germany didn't understand, didn't see what we don't see today either, the importance of exponential growth of technology. And um, so it took us a long time. Uh, you know, they didn't understand why do they need a, an internet presence. We're talking 1994. The head of Oracle Germany for, for whom I, I worked at the time, said, as long as I'm at Oracle, the internet is, is not a topic. And of course, we now see through the pandemic that this kind of mindset um, really succeeded in not digitalize the world. That's why the pandemic, you know, only had to occur in order for us to open up to this. So in terms of economics and financials, what the big shift, the big shift in my case was when we realized that people didn't want to have an internet presence because they didn't know what the internet was and they didn't have access to the internet, I we went to friends, fools, and family and uh, and uh, got money to start the first internet service provider in Germany, which became the first internet stock that went public on the German stock exchange, which all of a sudden uh, got us off poverty we you know it wasn't an ipo an exit and um and then if you work so hard like in my case to really survive and thrive and do the best with what i had between my two ears all of a sudden the financial um means were here and uh and my husband and I are seminar junkies so we've studied with who's who going to seminars on a regular basis but that was then the point where we saw, oh, my God, we live in a schizophrenic world. 
on one hand, my parents, although they were workers, they were philanthropists uh, because um, that means that you love people. So they went and gave, gave uh, you know, the little money that they had to those who had less in Romania and others around the world. And, and then all of a sudden, uh, you know, the IPO, Wall Street. So I saw something is really skewed and wrong. So you go during the day, make money on Wall Street. And on the other, you know, in the evening, um, you give money, you know, oh, you know, I'm better than you. So I'm giving you money to philanthropy, which is good. But it's, it's a strange system that enables that. So I thought something is really wrong. And I looked for a model. Uh, to integrate the two, and that's how I came across um, the integral theory by Ken Wilber, that of course changed again my entire life, and he has been a friend ever since and a big supporter, which of course helped me take the integral theory, the model, into every single aspect of my of our activity since then. So it's now uh, close to over twenty years. Um, you know, and build companies with people who come in from a higher level of consciousness, not an egocentric, not even an ethnocentric level, but world centric. And so it is my belief that by working with people like this and supporting, um, you know, our common growth, inner growth, transformation and connect, uh, creating the abundance through technology that, um, that's the best contribution I can um, I can bring to the table. So there are many, many, many things, but this was a significant one. Coming across the, uh, a theoretical model, and as a scientist, of course, I uh, I then went to get my PhD in psychology and transpersonal psychology, which of course uh, provided the foundation. I could stand on two legs as a as a scientist, as a as a computer scientist, as a business person, and also in terms of psychology. So integrating the head and the heart through investing, through entrepreneurship, um, because it's much, much easier to, to start at the bottom with two people and a dog and a business plan and build companies rather than go to Volkswagen or BMW um, that are, you know, that's a huge conglomerate that uh, is very difficult. So that's my humble contribution to, uh, to this. Absolutely. You, you certainly have not bored God. <laughs> you know, you seem to be a universe of ideas and of learning packed into a biodegradable space-time suit. You know, you really are on a frontier of a frontier. Now, we do know that we are in a time of um, whole system transformation, and you are playing a very interesting leading role in this transformation. So then if we bring it back to, to economics, what would you suggest is needed for making this shift from predator economics to the love and caring economy? And how do you see that inner shift first and foremost? And here's something else. Here is uh, in terms of the inner shift. Are you organizing? I mean, obviously you have a, a you are a, uh, a maestra. A maestro of an orchestrator. How would you create places where people can be hear the new music of the time, orchestrate, and and begin to have the the level of consciousness that transcends all of the nonsense of the last fifty and sixty years? How would you do that? 
there are two major questions that I heard uh, from your question. One is in terms of economic uh, integration, and the other is how would would the transformation occur at the individual and collective level in terms of mind shift. So let me let me start again with the you know with the head part and then we could go into the heart part. I have studied in parallel to computer science while I studied computer science in Karlsruhe at the Karlsruhe Institute of Technology. I I got so bored with uh, with computer science um, classes and all this um, detached from the human being kind of teaching that I went across the street and um, I was always, always extremely interested in, in uh, history because history <clears throat> helped me make sense of the world. And I haven't stopped, particularly now as, as a member of the Club of Rome, uh, we are faced with all these um, different, and that's the problem, segregated silos that all say, no, do this, do that, da, 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 da. And, and we are competing, the silos are competing with one another. And this prevents transformation because we're wasting our energy. We don't join forces. We don't build, it's like a, having a, a bowl, a small bowl, a, a glass where you have a little fish, and then the other one has the ball. We're not building a huge aquarium where a biotope, you know, where everyone can live successfully. So... Because we think, oh, no, my bowl is more important than yours and is better and is blue and more green than yours. And so as I looked at um, archaeological uh, studies, you know, history, there is an um, extraordinary book by um, Joseph Tainter, and I'm sure um, you know it, um, The Collapse of uh, Complex Civilizations. And <clears throat> he looked, uh, it was a book that was published back in the 80s, I think. So he looked at what, in terms of archaeological um, remains, what made co complex societies collapse. And so in summary, he identified various sectors that pertain to a complex society, which if those cannot be sustained economically, the society collapses. And <clears throat> so he looked at the Sumerian, um, the, the Romans and others. So <clears throat> what are these sectors? Because they're no different than uh, we have today. It's, they're always the same thing. It's a, you know, it's a global world. But so one sector is food. Another is information, how information gets um, acquired and processed. And tra transportation, how the society communicates with one another. And, um, and um, you know, in terms of transport, how uh, logistics, how do you distribute food across the empires and so on. Then the energy needs to be provided, you know, for everyone, because otherwise the society cannot thrive. It's civilization only exists based on energy. And then various materials, you know, Stone Age and uh, metals and da-da-da-da-da. <clears throat> and so these are the ones that um, he identified. And I would add to that mind mindset, you know, which is the unseen, which is the what the Ken Wilbur has so beautifully uh, brought into my life, at least. So... What happens when a society collapses? All of these sectors of the society can no longer be sustained because the cost for sustaining them is so expensive 
that the, the governments cannot sustain them. So economists speak within this context about the law of diminishing returns. So you cannot sustain the society collapses. Today, we have the same sectors, but we have something that wasn't present before, namely the law of accelerated returns that comes from investments from the collective intelligence across since eons, since civilization started, but more accelerated since the uh, Industrial Revolution that brings technology into our lives, makes our lives easier, more affordable, simpler, accessible, demonetization, dematerialization, uh, democratization. We all see it costs a lot of money to build an iPhone, uh, but to buy it, you know, uh, a couple of years later is cost nothing. And that's true for everything, whether you look at uh, the energy sector. Uh, you know, solar panels, building them are, is expensive, but today you can put one on your, on your house and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's affordable. The same for wind energy, the same for batteries. And if you have these, for instance, to stick with the energy sector, if you see how the technology converges over time, in 10 years, if we continue with this law of accelerated returns, you get more for the money. In 10 years, we will be able to produce energy from the sun, from the wind, from nature at zero cost with very little, um, you know, uh, higher productivity, little waste and so on. So this is from an economical perspective. This is what we need to look at and do more of, but sustainably. So the next two years. We need to, and not 10 years, We my scientists tell us that we only have 10 years to set our systems, and I would go back to the five sectors, six sectors uh, that I mentioned, in order to build societies that are sustainable. So net zero emissions and even, you know, go beyond that. And But we need to start now. So in energy, we have the solutions. In food, we have the solutions. Uh, for instance, uh, we can, you know, our... Uh, grandchildren will look back at us and say, oh my God, how terrible you guys were. You were raising animals to slaughter them and eat them. That is just, it's impossible. If you go to uh, Star Trek, you know, you have a replicator, you can build food, you know, based on, on cells, uh, you know, from protein. You can build food in a lab, you know, through, um, you know, the fermentation, um, precision, precision fermentation and others. So we don't have to do these and it's all affordable. Uh, for instance, um, for 10 years, 2010, gaining or building one kilogram of um, artificial meat cost a million dollars. Now it costs 10. So it is all affordable. It's, make, it's possible because of the law of accelerated return. And I could go into transportation and other areas. But uh, now to come back to the second part of your, um, of your question, um, in terms of the, the mind shift. Well, that's the hard part. And um, the solution, because it's, it's, oh my God, I've been sitting on a cushion meditating for 40 years. I have studied with who's who in this world, um, including our joy, uh, common friend uh, Deepak Chopra and others. That's hard. But I also believe that technology can help 
move us. And, you know, um, I, I find in, in the book that, uh, you know, you sent me, uh, you quote um, HeartMath, you know, my friends at HeartMath, you know, there is technology that is enabling us to, to, to make small shifts in our consciousness to awaken to different understanding and can accelerate uh, the inner development individually, but also collectively. And when it comes to how the world can be transformed, well, it is a leadership issue. Most people are followers. They don't want to be leaders. So unfortunately, it is left to our leaders to lead us in a sustainable future. And they need to be awakened. Uh, politicians don't get any training in science. Unfortunately, they don't get any training in, uh, you know, uh, personal growth. What does it mean to be in ethics and morals? So that needs to change. And um, scientists, programmers don't get trained in, in ethics and morals. So the result are these terrible, terrible algorithms that put our society at risk and, and make people kill themselves. And uh, so... So, but I'll stop here and hoping that I have answered your question here, Jean. <laughs> You've more than answered it. You've added things to that. The, the law of accelerated return, that's, that's really, really powerful. And that's also powerful from an evolutionary perspective. In the book as well, we are exploring how one of these evolutionary laws is also increasing complexity, but in a way that is evolutionary coherent rather than that it becomes more entropic. And it's have a sense that somehow what you're describing here, the two align. And I'm also, I'm, I'm curious about two things. One is, while this is happening, this trend that you're describing so powerfully, we also have seen, of course, increasing ecological depth um, from a planetary perspective. So could it be because the, the technologies haven't yet caught up yet to that point? What are we seeing kind of the backlog of, of the old ways um, because those were so much fossil fuel based? Um, and that brings me then to the second question. And that is, I am so curious to learn from you about safe AI <laughs> and ethical algorithms. Um, in our book, the main character, Rose, she is convinced that when we understand the cosmological architecture of life itself for a better understanding of consciousness itself, that and because there are you know many algorithms that we can find in nature that are not based on greed and competition and division and disunity in fact they're algorithms that are based on this deeper wholeness uh, of life itself so she's really curious to explore how can we work with algorithms and perhaps even safe ai that is based on that understanding of the unity of consciousness itself. So those two questions, one, the, the kind of, the, how, what do we need to understand about ecological debt that has increased so much in the same period? And the second question then, well, how can we make that shift towards, and what do you understand about safe AI and ethical algorithms? I'm not sure I understand. Um, first of all, and, uh, I'd like to comment on the, the law of accelerated return uh, this is not my idea. It's uh, um, Ray Kurzweil. So I would like to 
to give credit to where credit is due. So this is extremely important. And he has, I highly, highly recommend his writings. He's an extraordinary uh, smart person. So in terms of the ecological depth, I'm not sure I understand what your question aims at. Can you please? Um, sure. So if we're looking, yes, if we're looking at the global footprint, then we start to see that the time in which we are in ecological depth every, every year gets sooner and sooner. So that means that we're using more of our planetary resources than that the Earth is able to regenerate. So we're creating, and also we are um, decreasing the value of many of the ecosystem services for future generations. So both of those aspects are taken into account when there is a foot, global footprint calculations. Uh, whereby we see that we are kind of consuming much more of our planet than our planet is able to regenerate and renew herself in an increasing trend. Uh, that, of course, within the planetary uh, boundaries framework as well and the thresholds, sustainability thresholds and allocations. So that's where the kind of ecological depth where we see this growing trend every year, um, as long as our economies are so much fossil fuels dependent. Um, and that if we're using extractive economic uh, means for being able to growing and developing our societies and also fossil fuel based technologies. So <laughs> that's uh, that. Uh, oh, you have the simplest questions in the world. <laughs> 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 and you know, I only have forty minutes to uh, respond to all of them and and provide solutions. So, thank you for your faith. <laughs> well, I have complete faith in you. <laughs> well, you know that uh, as we are doing this interview, COP twenty one takes place. So they are basically uh, trying to address exactly that. So. In terms of my humble wisdom on this, yes, this is uh, one of the most important aspects that uh, we need to address these days because our very livelihood is at stake. And one thing that uh, few people are actually willing to address is overpopulation. And uh, of course, the more people are born on this planet, the more resources we need. And of course, we only have one Earth. So somebody, something has to give in order to, uh, to get out of this uh, conundrum. Apart from the, apart from the uh, economic and industrialized, because we all need to feed these people. You know, we're almost 7.7, .7, close to 8 billion. And we have, I have spoken before about the uh, exponential growth of technology. Well, the world's population has also grown exponentially over the past um, 100 years. And every 12 years, we add another billion to this. And here there are many, many ways to look at it. I have. Uh, personally adopted the report to the Club of Rome, the action that is called upon in the report to the Club of Rome called Transformation is Feasible uh, by the Stockholm Resilience Center. Um, the head uh, writers were um, Jorgen Randers, who is a member of uh, the International Club of Rome and one of the original authors of Limits to Growth. And uh, another researcher is Johan Rockström, who is the head of the Potsdam Institute. 
in Germany, um, also a member of the Club of Rome. And so in that very short report, which I highly recommend uh, people to read, is, is just a few pages, they are basically outlining what needs to happen in order for us to go back to a safe operating system within our planet, um, back to the safe planetary boundaries of which there are nine. So this is very complex, convoluted. We could have an entire conversation on this. But what's actually happening is everyone wants to implement the UN SDGs. And so these are very aspirational goals, and we should. However, we cannot pick and choose the ones that we like and disregard others, because they all need to be implemented together within the a safe operating system, and that's currently not happening. So what Johan Rockström is basically and Jorge Drenders are, are recommending is we need to look at how we are implementing them and go back to a safe oper operating system of the planet because we have left those. What does it mean? There are nine planetary boundaries which have been identified by science, which when you talk about the dangers of our ecological depth, you call that, then that's exactly what we need to look at. So CO2 emissions is just one, and that's the most important one. But there are many others. The nitrogen flows uh, have been also, is, is extremely important. Our oceans are warming up um, because of that. And the correlation, uh, warm um, drinking water is also an important aspect in this. So I, I, I don't have time to go into the many details of the nine planetary boundaries. Within this context, those who are listening to this, I highly, highly recommend uh, going and watching the Netflix movie um, where uh, called um, Breaking Boundaries that is being made um, between... Uh, with uh, Sir Attenborough and Johann Rockström, where they exactly, where they explain exactly um, what the situation is of the current nine planetary boundaries and how, you know, what needs to happen in order to go uh, to go back. So that's a, that's a separate conversation. In terms of implementing the UN SDGs within planetary boundaries, and we're not on the trajectory that we're currently doing. Um, uh, you know, we're not doing that. We will fail in implementing the UN SDGs and we will destroy ourselves if we continue in a business and usual, even if with um, a scenario or even if we try harder. Uh, so we really need to implement a smart way, what they call the smart way. What is that? There are five political and um, action items that I we have adopted in terms of investing into the companies that help you know, that contribute to going back into a safe operating system. Number one is increase, significantly increase the investments in renewable energies to ensure carbon, halving the carbon emissions by in 10 years. Uh, well, actually, it depends on the numbers are different, but we need to go to zero, uh, net zero um, uh, economic activity on the planet. So through investments in renewable energies across the board. Number two, we need to make sure that we feed the people on this planet. 
which comes back again to what the uh, you know the archaeologists tell us you know uh, energy pr providing energy and the food so we uh, we need to make sure that whatever we do to feed people on the planet that is done in a sustainable way number 3 we need to make sure that we help developing countries that the developed countries basically help developing countries develop in a sustainable way and not produce CO2 emissions as, um, as China has done, for instance. They've done a wonderful job, but we need to do what they did right, but in a sustainable way. We need to learn from China and South Korea and, and, um, and Japan and others and, you know, and provide the support and the money, the funding and the guidance to developing countries. Number four, we need to reduce inequality. We need to make sure that 10% uh, of the population in the, every country doesn't own more than 40% of the wealth, which is very often the case. And number five, which is my favorite, is girls' education, family planning, support women. Because, of course, that's where the woman comes to the forefront right now. The science tells us that the difference between in terms of the uh, carbon footprint, the difference between a girl that has been uh, has 12 years of education, which of course would make her a woman, and one without education is four and a half children. So that addresses the overpopulation. And of course, healthcare is part of that. That's why we invest in education and healthcare uh, from an early stage perspective. So this is basically addressing the first uh, Part of the question that you have. The second question, um, that was artificial intelligence. There is a lot of confusion as to what in the world is artificial intelligence. And do we actually, are we currently being manipulated by artificial intelligence systems in the world? And oh my God, our privacy is being violated and all these things. So I think trying to make more sense of what is actually going on would be very helpful. So artificial intelligence is, it depends how you look at it. We do have uh, um, Kai Fu Li, who is a, a very well-known Silicon Valley artificial intelligence expert. He has identified four major areas that will probably help most people to make sense of you know, what are the ways um, in terms of evolution of uh, artificial intelligence? And the first wave where it all started is Internet AI, which is basically what we have today. It's, um, you know, you go to Netflix and if you're lucky, Netflix recognizes you uh, in terms of, uh, you know, what you've watched last night and, you know, make some recommendations for what you could watch today. So... Then we also have Facebook. Yes, they do all use all kinds of algorithms and they want to keep you on site so that you spend more money and the impact is all well known. So that's the internet AI, internet-based AI. The next evolution um, wave in AI is business AI. Of course, Netflix and Facebook are businesses, but, um, and well, oh, another thing that, that I need to preface is Artificial intelligence, and I, as I said before, I studied artificial intelligence back in the 19, early 80s. But AI went into dormant phase. Why? 
although the technology AI has been actually named such as such in 1956 uh, by uh, by a Stanford professor, um, John, I, I forgot the last name, uh, but it couldn't succeed because the computing power was not there. And as the computing power became, uh, you know, we, you know, ex grew exponentially and it was available, all of a sudden you could see that, you know, AI could also, you know, in terms of modern programming could also be implemented. Why? Because another component came along, which is extremely important, is the availability of data. AI can only exist with masses of data. So that is extremely important. Now, back to business AI, and please stop me if I'm boring you. Is that okay? Uh, so, business AI is basically the mining of massive amounts of data to, yes, you can influence people on Facebook and do bad things with them. I'm personally, as you can tell, I'm not a fan of Facebook. But the positive thing which gives us hope and should give us, give us hope is the application of AI-based technology, which is, you know, some sort of a smart algorithm. It's not really self-thinking and doesn't have anything to do with massive you know, amounts of intelligence. We're not there yet. But building, for instance, predictive um, medicine, helping people uh, perform remote diagnosis. Imagine what is the impact of a system that is available. People, most people have an iPhone in Africa and all of that. Imagine how you could actually coach somebody um, with a health problem through a simple iPhone for free in, in the wildest depth of, of, uh, of nature. So, that, of course, the premise is to have uh, internet access, but I'm sure that's not an issue uh, as we move along. So that is a beautiful application of for making better decision uh, decisions in in business, providing health better health healthcare to to systems, and also helping to develop solutions to diseases like Parkinson's through uh, through protein folding and others uh, that don't have, um, uh, you know, remedy as we speak. So I'm personally a huge fan of technology and how that can be applied to help people on the planet. Why? Because if people have the feeling that they are taken care of, for instance, through universal basic income, through technology, through um, medical care and so on, they don't need to multiply, you know, they don't need to ensure their future through their children who are starving. Then the third wave is perception AI, which is um, which is actually beginning to um, emerge. In um, you know you're paying um, the pandemic has actually made it available. You're paying with your face, so that's an application of you know all these smart systems. You know, and it's not it's not a simple thing to do. Uh, can help us you know gain a better life and and um, create the a better future for us. And then, of course, the fourth wave is autonomous AI, which is um, different from um, automated, automated AI. 
that we currently have, um, like self-driving, but systems that actually artificial intelligence systems that um, you know make decisions currently, right? You know, they uh, ind independently from a human can make decisions. So that's uh, we currently have um, self-driving cars right now, um, and that's coming. Uh, but um, autonomous AI would take that to the next level. Now, in terms of the structure of um, of AI, so I, I better stop here because we could go into various other areas. So you see, I am a fan. <laughs> I'm a fan of the um, application of artificial intelligence. However, having said that, we need to make sure and invite everybody to sign the Asilomar principles. What is that? The artificial intelligence, and we talked about this before, the artificial AI systems are as good uh, or everything on the outside is a direct reflection of who is on the inside and what we are on the inside. And that's no different in artificial intelligence, right? So I create the world on the outside as I am on the inside, as I think, you know, my level of consciousness manifests on the outside, of course. And that's the same in programmers. And that's why I called for, and um, that's why I joined the uh, Future of Life Institute that was started by um, Mark Stegmark and uh, financed by Elon Musk, who is a big believer that we need to save consciousness uh, on this planet. He doesn't think that uh, you know, we are very successful at it, but uh, otherwise he wouldn't want to fly to my Mars. But um, I am a big supporter. So Sanya Silomar Principles, in order to ensure that those who are programming the artificial intelligence systems get and are tested on ethical uh, means. They get an ethical and moral education. And uh, we now see how uh, some artificial intelligence systems have, you know, big ones. You know, Google, you know, they looked at uh, uh, black people and uh, said that those, uh, you know, were um, gorillas or something. So you see that's a direct reflection of the programmer's mindset. So this is something, again, that um, politicians need to join and the, um, you know, people, you know, those who are awakened need to join forces in and address the, those issues because that's where the problem comes. Um, and, of course, as AI evolves to, um, you know, artificial general intelligence, you know, to really mimic human intelligences or even go beyond to super intelligence, um, you know, it becomes even more important that these uh, ethical um, dimensions are being implemented. And of course, I mean, we all need to listen to Snowden and others in order to know that uh, something uh, has to occur. And so that is ethical AI. I would like to add another component because everyone talks about ethics and AI and uh, ethics in general, but nobody really goes into the details. What does it mean? Oh, we need to implement ethics and morals. What does it mean? Um, let's take um, all the churches in the world for ever since civilization uh, began existing, have a moral code. The Ten Commandments in in the uh, in the in the uh, in the Western in the, the the European world, Catholics and like you know all these, um, we do have those Ten Commandments. But why aren't we in the world listening to them? Why don't we implement it? Why is it so difficult to do that? 
So we're not the first to call for our, for ethics and morals. The church has done it, and they haven't succeeded only partially. All in one, one you know, yes, we have evolved, but since everyone is born at square zero, and depending on their economic stratus, you know, situation, they have the mindset and can focus on moving up the Maslow pyramid. But if they are caught up in survival mode, they can't. They have to go and steal in order to survive. So we need to define what ethics is and morals, you know, and provide the people the ability to really move up, you know, the, the Maslow pyramid, to use an example in terms of evolutionary um, inner evolution. So I think it's extremely important that we take these uh, things into consideration because it's not that we are only now faced with uh, with such issues. No, the church, churches, all uh, religion around the world has uh, have been doing this for a long time. And but you know even the Dalai Lama is born at ground zero, and we have to um, live in a society that supports evolution and um, moral evolution and ethical evolution. So I hope um, I addressed most of the issues that you Wonderful. asked. Me. <laughs> Mariana, you are a thrilling thinker. <laughs> and before I ask my question, I, I do want to remark upon um, what Mr. Zuckerberg has just come up with, saying that we're going, he's going to create the metasphere where people buy property, you know, within the the inner this this meta world, and of course that brings with it all kinds of um, dreadful possibilities. But my real question is that given the pathology in leadership today, if you were asked to bring together a core team of people from everywhere to join a special gathering of architects, we really talk about architects a lot in our books, a gathering of world architects whose task it is to start designing, designing, designing new covenants, new constitutions, business models, technologies for catalyzing many of the things that you've been talking about, catalyzing the, the necessary changes in the ways we, we become human, <laughs> we become the possible human, the ways we grow, develop, evolve our human societies. What would be the first tasks or processes that you would focus on and your key criteria for bringing this team together? Another simple question. Good question. <laughs> Interestingly enough, we're thinking along the same lines uh, because as as I referred to before, you know, all these uh, silos that we're currently facing prevent uh, yes. the unification of, uh, of, uh, of those thinkers. So those of us who, um, who are less narcissistic, <laughs> should I say? <laughs> I think that's one of the biggest, yeah. I think that's one of the biggest uh, impediments of, uh, you know, joining forces because, uh, you know, we, the technology um, has also created the bed, you know, the, the environment for creating narcissists, uh, you know, whether they're a covert or open. 
but um, to come back to your assuming that we can see those and uh, each other um, and uh, and can overcome the traps of uh, of narciss of our own narcissism i uh, we're thinking as along the same lines who are the people we there is an organization that started the inner development goals uh, which I think that's exactly what needs to be added to the um, sustainable development goals. And um, so I, I, I would, I don't know that I have one thing uh, or the solution uh, because I, I don't, but I do have some ideas and the direction that we are trying to move towards. I think that honoring the truth um, in all there is, which is the motto of Ken Wilber's integral theory, honoring the truth in all there is, across all evolutionary scales, all peoples, all intelligences, cognitively or not, I think is extremely important because one of the biggest mistakes that uh, I see occurring is that people use their minds only, only the cognitive intelligence, and try to make sense of the world, um, whereas most of what makes us is <laughs> not seen, cannot be you know, it's not cognitively explainable. It's, uh, yeah, we do have science and it, but if you really look into the world and look what science has been able to, uh, to uh, achieve, we can only make sense of, at the most, 5% of the universe. Everything, 95% is not explainable. So we need to leave room for the unknown. And uh, in order for us to come up with new solutions, we need to bring those who are open enough in their heart and represent various types of intelligences, not just cognitive and science, uh, but also arts, um, morals, psychology, psychospirituality, emotional intelligence. You know, I think we need to bring all these people around the table and a willingness to listen to one another, go into a process of emergence, of listening to one another, and where we allow the wisdom, the collective wisdom of people who understand, accept, and love each other, learn to love each other, to emerge new wisdom. I don't think that any one of these groups, stakeholders, whatever they want to call themselves, have the answers. Um, because the problems that we're having are way too big right now. But I do believe, I'm actually not, not I believe, I know that we do have the solution. I know we will survive. And not only survive, I know we will thrive. I, I have this, I grew up as an atheist in communist Romania, of course. <laughs> and I believed in it. But I had to reinvent God, not God in church, but God, spirituality for myself. So that's how I began meditating and so on, because I had to. And in a similar way, I hope that my, building such gatherings like the ones that you're having right now uh and i'm so it opens my heart i cannot tell you enough i tell you this with tear in my eyes how grateful i am that there are you know groups like the ones that we're working on exist outside of um of, of my own gravitational center and so i i have the conviction that we will that transformation is possible I'm not saying that it will be easy, but um, I think, so transcend and include. Use the wisdom of what, you know, we're standing on the shoulders of people who have come before us. 
transcend and include their wisdom, um, build diverse groups of people across all possible intelligences and representatives. But however, I think one important aspect is we need to limit, timely limit this process. We cannot talk endlessly without results. We need resolutions. And, um, and we need to force ourselves in terms of um, force ourselves to spit it out, to say, what is it? Because, you know, we can only know the next step. We can know, we, we will not know what's going to happen in 100 years. Evolution takes place, but we need to allow evolution to take place, consciousness to, to occur through us. And so we only need the next step. So um, I don't know that I answered your question, dear friend, but this is what I would like to do because. Uh, Solutions are there, uh, but we need to bring them together and allow each other to be informed, to learn from one another, and not um, pretend that we already know, because that's arrogance, that's not true, and allow room for the unknown to emerge. To emerge. Thank you. Many would think and that we are in closing times. And yet you have a freshness of vision that suggests that we are on the eve of opening times. Why is this going to happen? Is that a statement or a question? Why that is going to happen? <laughs> Why is this going to happen? Because you seem to believe this and that's wonderful. You know it and you bring together such a rich panoply of possibilities. You have existential knowledge of so many things going on in the world, both for good or ill, but you have moved in your life story and in your thinking to the sense of that we are past apocalypse into, uh, in, into new, a time of radically new creation and possibility, the possible human and the possible world. Uh, that's an impossible question. Um, yes, of course it is. It's the only kind that's worth asking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, because my life was full of miracles. That's yes. why. And um, I am a scientist who meditates. And, uh, and I, I know that the next miracle is coming. Um, I don't know where, but I know. Um, you know, when yeah. Carl Jung was asked uh, whether he believes in God or not, he said, um, I don't have to believe, I know. <laughs> and <laughs> I have to come up with the same answer. Um, and I'm not yeah. talking about God. I'm talking about um, one. my greatest belief in life is I'm taken care of. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here. And if as long as I'm still here, I'm taken care of. We are taken care of. And evolution can only occur through, um, through us. How else? Um, you know, one of my a friend who um, came to my house in, in Portola Valley, in Silicon Valley, was, uh, is Neil Donald Walsh. And uh, he was an amazing teacher. And uh, 
He's my neighbor, by the way. Oh my God! <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm. I'm sure he remembers this. He's been in my house. <laughs> uh, give him my love, please, because that's I've learned a lot. I mean, the duel is created um, because through us, evolution takes place. Consciousness evolves, and that's why we're here. And if if we're not meant to go to the next step, um, we we wouldn't exist. So the fact that we exist shows me that there is the next step, the next evolutionary step in consciousness. Whether that will go uh, in regression for a time or not, uh, it, but evolution takes place and will continue. And I know that. Don't ask me how I know. I, <laughs> I know it in my heart. And that, that's why Lewis asks the question. That relates to this, Annalise. Um, actually, I just—I'm out of questions. I'm actually out of. <laughs> I just want to say that that's why, for me, and I know for Jean too, you embody what it means to be a future human, because everything that yes. you've just said—that to me—is the spirit of what it means to be a future human, because that's living the future now. You know, the future is that continuation of consciousness of life itself. And, and it's, it's that future that reaches into us, exactly as, as you just said. I find it so powerful and, and so profound. And I also experience this so much in your, in your thinking, in your ideas, but also most of all your care, you know, your love, <laughs> your, your commitment, the whole journey that you've entered in your life, what you've done with your life, what you've shown, you know, what is possible by taking on those challenges and becoming wiser through it and more innovative and more creative. So thank you for exemplifying what it means to be a future human and giving us hope of this possible world that's already alive in our hearts right here. Thank you. Thank you. I'm just mirroring you, my dear friends. Thank you. Many blessings to you, you. all. Many blessings. Many blessings.